Hi everyone, you're listening to EFG's podcast, Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. Uh, and today we have our quarterly uh, market review or our insight document review. And uh, for those of you who, uh, who are sort of digitally native, um, you'll notice that our insight document that is available on the EFG website as well as on LinkedIn and various other social media platforms, you can actually click in um, to the podcast through that uh, through that document. And, uh, and of course, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you may be just listening from it without going through the document. So if you go to the EFG website, you can actually click in to the document as well and you can follow through this uh, very important discussion. So within this uh, discussion, we have... Um, uh, our regular panel uh, of macro strategist economists and of course um, uh, superstars so we have uh, Dan Murray Dan uh, welcome and we have Gianluigi Mandarin Zato Joaquin Tool and of course our external guest uh, Paul Templeton so Paul welcome as well so and he's here in the studio with me so um, so let's uh, start straight away obviously it's been a very difficult tough uh year so far uh certainly to the end of september financial markets have had a, a very tough time uh, be it uh, equities or fixed income um in fact the only areas that have shown any sort of positive light uh probably oil only if you bought it at the beginning of the year and um and of course a uh, strong dollar which has obviously been um uh, a big beneficiary of um, the the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve, and the hikes that is done, as well as the um, uh, worries about uh, U.S. inflation. In fact, they probably certainly feel at the moment the, the to be the most credible central bank in fighting inflation at the moment. And I think uh, that's why the dollar is so strong. Um, and of course, we've also had bond markets that. Um, um, Daniel put a chart out the other day showing that this is the worst bond market in 150 years or certainly since 1872. Uh, this is US Treasury bond market. So really tough environment. Uh, as a result, it is all about the uh, inflation uh, and the director inflation. Certainly so far, Paul, it's been, um, uh, it's been stickier than people expected for various reasons, uh, be it uh, rent, which is kind of a backward-looking indicator versus, say, spot commodities as more coincident. Um, but, uh, you know, on the um, uh, page two of the document, the overview, maybe you want to just give us a little bit of summary as to um, uh, why it's been so challenging to uh, to figure out the inflation rate. Well, we've called this document Winds of Change, or the title is Winds of Change, and we hope there are some winds of change because, as you say, <coughs> throughout the year... Uh, people have been disappointed with the trend in inflation. It's continued to to rise. It's not sort of receded as expected. We have what, what some people might consider a relatively optimistic, but it's a sort of consensus forecast chart of the trend in inflation over the course of the rest of this year and into 2023 and 2024. And it does recede on that basis down to 2%. Um, weakening commodity prices, supply chain pressures, easing freight rates coming down and so on um the ingredients are in place and as you rightly say a lot of tightening uh but 
Monetary Policy Acts with a lag. I mean, we've known that for many, many years, and the lag is sort of a 18 months to two years or so. Um, so it takes some time. And the problem right now, uh, we've got in chart four, one which is inflation in the advanced economies. We've, we've got um, food and energy prices and then other other contributors to inflation. Now, food and energy, economists often exclude, you know, so it raises that joke, doesn't it? Economists live in a world where nobody drives a car, heats their house or eats anything. So you exclude food and energy. But food and energy at the moment eat up the inflation allowance. They basically contribute 2% to world inflation. And everything else on top of that. So that just shows how sticky it is. Eventually, yes, I'm sure, we're going to recede. Uh, towards 2%. And I know Daniel's got a model uh, of inflation in uh, the US and uh, advanced economies, which does actually show that's the case. So the trouble is, you know, we've been disappointed or markets have been disappointed for so long now. Um, we're just waiting for that change to come through. Uh, also, I mean, from your uh, conference at the start of the year, the, uh, the offsite, the knowledge exchange... I think back to what Chris Watling from Longview said about the main risk to markets this year, and it was a rise in real interest rates. And that's exactly what's happened. We've got a chart number five on the backup in real interest rates in the US market. We've seen it everywhere. From ridiculously low levels, we knew that they were ridiculously low, below zero, minus two, minus three percent, to levels which look sensible, uh, reflecting, I think, normal pricing of risk assets, so a real yield of 1% or 2%. If we can stabilise at that level, for me, that makes markets look properly priced. And so if we've got over that adjustment, so it's an inflation adjustment and a real yield adjustment, then you can be a bit more optimistic going forward, I think. Yeah, and I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair assumption. I guess the biggest challenge this year has been how quickly it's um, it's come back. Yeah, um, I think that has been the biggest challenge, right? It's you know, if someone said to me at the beginning of the year, well, most you know, um, Fed funds could be at four percent at some point in the future, I would have said, yeah, I could buy that maybe 2024, yep. you know, end of 2023. Certainly I would not have expected that in, say, a six-month or a nine-month, you know, time frame, which we already noted many times before is, you know, one of the fastest moves we've ever seen from a central bank. So, yep. um, so I think, um, uh, you know, I think that's been the challenge this year is not the level and I don't think whoever was the level is the speed. It's the speed of the change. It yeah, is, yeah. 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 And, and I can't help thinking, and I guess this is a discussion Darren and I had last week uh, on the podcast, was does the speed actually create accidents that, um, that uh, you know, hitherto uh, haven't been found out yet? So certainly the UK pension fund industry. UK pension fund industry is, uh, yeah. Um, and that is astonishing, but I went back to, uh, it's, a, it's amazing, went back nearly 20 years to a comment Willem Bauter, uh, who influential economist, made in the Financial Times. And he said, pension funds in the UK investing in long-term index-linked gilts on a negative real yield were like lemmings jumping off the edge of a cliff. Well, 20 years later, he's been right, proved right. You know, it was a bit silly, you know, liability-driven investment at negative real yields. 
never made sense to me, never made sense to a lot of people. And now with that big backup, um, we find that we're in difficulties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it's quite quite interesting, you know, discussion about um, uh, that I listened into uh, a few days ago about the most privileged um, elements of our population, be it in the US or the UK uh, and Europe, and how baby boomers have been massively privileged over the last you know, 40 or 50 years in terms of uh, you know, benefits of, call it the peace dividend, um, with a sort of Berlin Wall coming down, although now probably going back up again in Ukraine. But, um, uh, and uh, of course, uh, inflation generally coming down over that period. Uh, and, um, and then obviously big backup in or moving real estate prices and equity prices and bonds, uh, you know, it's been a, a very, very, very privileged um, society. Uh, and uh, maybe as they go into their retirement years, this is where it's payback. <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. And stop looking at me when you make that comment. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> yeah, but um, it, it, is, um, it is a very, very interesting um, you know, thought. Um, I guess with the speed of rates um, uh, and it's looking at this sort of global excess savings uh, number, um, which is still quite astonishing. I mean, uh, it's, it's come off a bit in the US. I mean, that's the number most people look at. But on our estimates that we've done, excess savings are still pretty much at the same sort of level as they reached sort of during the mm. pandemic. There's still a lot of excess savings. Um, but they're getting depleted in real terms yeah, yeah. by the rise in inflation. And I suppose the incentive there is to spend them as quick as possible. Yeah, They are being spent in the US. I mean, the excess saving yeah. numbers, you track more carefully, you know, month by month, it coming is coming down. down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in other economies, it looks to me that it's still pretty high, especially yeah. in China, for China, example, yeah. which has gone up because the economy has been in lockdown again. Yeah. So um, I guess still pretty much, uh, other than the US, is still pretty much deflationary everywhere. Uh, in terms of directionality, both in Europe and uh, and China, and of course, uh, with the speed of rate hikes, the dollar has been reigning supreme. It has, and I do wonder if that might be about to change. Gosh, that's hard, isn't it? I mean, what would what would lead it to change? I mean, just at its absolute level. I mean, we've put the dollar exchange rate index in DXY, which is what everybody looks at, but. The BIS real exchange rate index is heading towards the peak that it reached in 1985 for the US dollar when it was quite clearly misaligned. Mm. Um, that led, of course, to the plaza record and some attempt to bring the dollars, well, a successful attempt to bring the dollar's value back down. I don't see anything like that happening this time around. Mm. Uh, maybe because it's seen as a problem for the yen and for sterling and to a lesser extent the sort of euro. But the dollar is super strong. And it certainly is exporting inflation everywhere else. Absolutely. Which yeah. is uh, which is the bigger challenge, although we haven't seen the reverse benefit in the US yet, but it's no doubt coming, I yeah. think. Now, the, the broad conclusion in our... In our, um, in our overview and the, the charts just showed such a compelling... 
uh, you know, case that uh, you know eventually will come down is it's a it's a waiting game until yep. one one day we wake up in the morning and there's a lower inflation print or is a weaker growth print or whatever it might be that kind of signals the the, the change. But yep. I think the um, the title really I think makes the point that it you know the winds have changed at some point in the quarter I, I think is uh, highly likely we'll turn and uh, you know we emphasize the 13th of december cpi print which comes at the same time as the fed meeting in december and yeah, so on yeah, yeah. maybe maybe yeah. that's just when we see a turn yeah absolutely so anyway we will certainly watch that uh, you know very carefully carefully uh, page four then we have the asset market performance um <laughs> don't really want to spend Maybe. too much time on this one Good reading. <laughs> it's it's a uh, kind of sorry reading other than you know which is you know one of the things i always find quite fascinating about and why it's so difficult in this market environment is the countries that typically would do badly in a rising commodity as it was you saw at the beginning of the year although now their most commodities are negative but uh, in a world where you would have expected you know brazil and india to be one of the worst markets are actually one of the best markets uh, and i think that's where it's quite interesting to see um how and in one of our in one of our predictions at the beginning of the year was that we'll see this uh, uh, more levelled world in emerging markets, and certainly a very clear evidence that that indeed, um, you know, uh, is is happening. So, uh, anyway, interesting to see that because you normally in a down market you would expect to see India, Brazil, right on the other side, you know, of the chart. So, and of course, of course, the bond market, and you know, this is kind of eye watering, you know, gilts, um, you know, down. Uh, you so know, 35%, 35% in dollar terms, yes, yeah. not good. No, 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 exactly, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, even even local currency would talk about numbers at 20% plus, yep, uh, which is um, you know, uh, more like an emerging market. The great British peso, I think it's called these days, uh, oh dear, <laughs> than, than <laughs> the pound, but there we go. Mm. Um, so let's move to um, uh, page five and uh, Daniel um, bringing in uh, the the US uh, you know view of the world As again I guess the focus is very much on inflation and and commodities and base effects um, and I think that you know again quite compelling evidence that these are rolling over yeah I think there's um, you know many of the same factors that Paul just highlighted uh, really emanate from the US so this, you know, rolling over in commodity prices, you know, people were very quick to point out the risk to inflation on the upside when energy and food prices went up. We've now seen a definitive rolling over in, uh, well, obviously in oil prices, but also in uh, measures of uh, food pricing, such as the United Nations um, uh, Food Price Index. Uh, so definitely that's, uh, you know, likely to feed to slow inflation. But of course, I think also what people forget is that, you um, Housing is a major constituent of U.S. inflation indices, whether it's the CPI or um, the Fed's preferred measure, the PC deflator. And uh, with higher mortgage rates, which recently hit um, the highest in uh, several years, uh, there's also going to be a headwind to housing markets. We've already seen a softening in some of the housing market indicators in the U.S., and uh, uh, that would tend to be a precursor to rents coming off a bit. And uh, that too will feed into much slower inflation. So overall, I think the picture for inflation 
in the US. There's a whole load of factors that are conspiring to uh, point to lower expectations. Daniel, one of the points maybe to sort of bring in, obviously, um, uh, the Russia-Ukraine situation uh, is, you know, I guess we're, we're in this kind of stalemate uh, at the moment where uh, Ukraine has um, uh, has you know, fought back pretty competently. You get a sense that we're, we're probably entering a, uh, a different um, phase of the of the war where it's much more about attrition. So you, you've got, obviously, um, uh, Russia and Putin have, have, have brought in an extra 300,000 troops to kind of fortify their positioning. So you've got, at one end, more fortification, and you've got Ukraine rushing to try and get back as much of the um, uh, of land they lost um, in the earlier parts of the conflict back and I guess at some point they're going to meet somewhere in the middle you know probably looks like the Donbass region essentially um, but um, uh, any thoughts about obviously President Biden made some comments about um, uh, you know sort of throwing out some warning signs that uh, uh, about sort of nuclear threats um, any any sort of first thoughts or thoughts are around the phase of that phasing of that yeah I, I think it's useful just to cast our minds back to earlier this year when russia first invaded ukraine and that caused a huge spike in uncertainty uh, but after um uh, a few weeks market had largely priced that and there was some element of stability so of course it was very unpleasant and difficult for the poor people in ukraine but uh, markets have largely priced it, and uh, the military situation was evolving more or less as anticipated. There was um, a degree of predictability about it, and that degree of predictability has persisted until recently, and you know it's ebbed and flowed a little bit. But I think what the latest statements from Putin show, and what the latest advances from Ukrainian forces show, is that we've entered a new period of instability around uh, Ukraine. And you know, the market obviously needs to try to digest that and political commentators needs to try to digest that and understand what it, what it means. Now, I think the odds are still heavily against Putin using nuclear weapons, but they've clearly risen recently. So, um, uh, you know, if the number is very small to start with and it goes up by a, you know, quite a large factor, then that the end number you end up with might still be very small, but it's just a lot bigger than it was to start with. And I think it's that sort of situation we're in at the moment. Um, and of course, it's quite a binary situation. If you use nuclear weapons, then uh, the whole um, geopolitical status of the world changes, and uh, it's a completely different game. So, I, you know, to be clear, I don't think anybody thinks that there's a likelihood he will currently use nuclear weapons, but the probability has clearly risen recently, and with it, a, a huge increase in uncertainty. The classic example of uh, you know, low probability, but a very high impact if, if it were to take effect. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it is that classic, uh, uh, classic conundrum, low probability by high impact. But, uh, uh, and I think uh, obviously the most important element to all of this is, uh, you know, India and, and China that have now, you know, Russia's friends or best friends, India kind of sneaked in because they're taking the, the Russian oil. But, um, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I think recently um, at, at summits we we saw um, in uh, Eastern Europe um, that uh, you know 
China and certainly India would not be taking very kindly to such an action. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a there's a big, uh, you know, said low probability, but uh, high impact. So anyway, something that uh, no doubt we will be, you know, watching for uh, closely. Uh, so the other sort of uh, nuclear hit we had was obviously Truss and the Bank of England in the UK. Um, so, um, uh, you know, big challenges in the UK, as we know, and, uh, you know, trying to bring down inflation is, again is going to be a, a bit of a challenge. Uh, do you want to sort of uh, run through, uh, just here on page six, uh, our thoughts on the UK? Yeah, I mean, in addition to the sorts of forces that we've uh, just talked about in terms of uh, global oil and commodity prices and so forth, you know, the UK is an economy that historically has suffered from higher inflation than its European neighbours. And uh, bringing it down has normally encompassed uh, much higher rates and a recession. And so uh, that's um, certainly consistent with our current expectation uh, and... um, Certainly, uh, the data seems to be pointing in that direction for the UK. Uh, of course, the added complication for the UK on this occasion is Brexit, which um, further adds fuel to the inflationary fires, given that um, uh, it makes the UK economy less flexible. And uh, you know, we, we know, of course, about the complications of the way that uh, the energy market is regulated in the UK, which would also tend to mean that UK inflation peaks higher and later, despite the sort of offset from, from uh, uh, the energy price cap. So very complicated set of circumstances for the UK. And I think, you know, recession looks likely, uh, although the sort of quid pro quo is that will likely help to bring inflation back in line with target. One obviously big topic is around kind of uh, fiscal flexibility. And you know, we've got a, quite an interesting chart around Japan <laughs> and uh, as a comparison. Um, any, any thoughts around uh, around that? Yeah, I think the the challenge for the UK government is that building up credibility takes a great many years, but destroying it takes only a few minutes. And uh, that's a lesson that Kwarteng and Trust have learned um, very starkly over the past couple of weeks. So the sorts of language we've seen out of uh, Trust and Kwarteng more recently, including at the Conservative Party conference, have uh, talked about reversing some of the things that they had previously mentioned. But nonetheless, uh, they still have this issue over the credibility of their fiscal plans, the impact on uh, on debt, and whether or not um, that debt uh, will be um, translated into higher growth or if it's just going to result in a higher debt-to-GDP ratio. The Prime Minister and the Chancellor clearly believe that it will be justified by higher growth but uh, the market clearly much less certain, as evident in the higher bond yields that um, have resulted um, following those announcements. Uh, so moving then on to the eurozone and Gianluigi. Uh, uh, so uh, one of the um, key sort of topics in here are the cardinal principles. <laughs> yes, uh, and of course uh, that uh, goes straight to the. ECB approach to uh, fighting uh, the current inflation surge. And uh, as Mr. Schnabel, an influential member of the ECB board, um, laid out uh, clearly, uh, the one approach is to you know bring uh, uh, policy rates or interest rates 
uh, above uh, the rate of inflation or, or expected inflation. And that's where, where things uh, get a bit more complicated because, uh, in theory, of course, that would mean having uh, positive real rates. And uh, history shows that when uh, uh, real rates are indeed positive, uh, inflation slows down. But then uh, it comes to how you measure uh, inflation or inflation expectations, because particularly in an area like the Eurozone, where, which is not a, a, a single uh, political entity, but has many countries and with different uh, sensitivities around inflation, you have German and Italian households having very different views of uh, future inflation. Uh, and, and they themselves are very different for, from what market views about future inflation seems to be, at least looking at our uh, screens. And so that makes uh, uh, uncertain where uh, the signpost would be for policy rates to rise. Or if that uh, indication from Schnabel refers to policy rates or uh, bond yields, which indeed are already much higher than uh, the ECB policy rates. So it's all a bit... Um, uh, unclear, uh, but for the direction of travel of monetary policy from the ECB, which uh, of course uh, clearly uh, anticipates a further rate increases for the next few meetings at least. The kind of one sort of benefit, I guess, over this period has been um, the weakness of the euro against uh, the, the dollar. Um, uh, and I guess the same thing holds for the Swiss franc. So uh, obviously nowhere near at the same extent. But, uh, um, you know, thoughts around uh, the dollar and um, I guess certainly from from um, from my perspective, one of the things that is kind of intriguing is that, you know, the Fed would have hit peak rates possibly before the ECB has. Um, when do the, the FX markets or the dollar markets at least start to reflect that um, that you know the the pivot back to a stronger euro versus the dollar, and indeed, if that's just a a fleeting uh, move or something that's more permanent. Oh, oh yes, absolutely, and that also uh, you know goes back to the absolute level uh, of the dollar that has already been been reached, and uh, seems to be indeed factoring a lot of uh, so to say good news for for the dollar in terms of. Uh, uh, higher policy rates uh, and also why not a better macroeconomic environment altogether than uh, than its uh, trading peers and uh, so one would, would indeed ask uh, if that is uh, uh, sustainable or for how much longer that can be that can be sustained uh, also because uh, in all likelihood uh, inflation as much as it has risen, Faster, particularly when it looks at tradable goods inflation, like producer price inflation taken as a proxy in the eurozone because of the uh, energy crisis uh, uh, that uh, is still weighing on on the eurozone economy. Now things have started to improve, and that uh, at least uh, opens the, to the possibility that next year inflation uh, will surprise uh, a bit to the downside. And that uh, will also improve, why not, the, the underlying uh, fundamental equilibrium level of exchange rate, which uh, otherwise with such a huge differential would normally go in favor of the country that has the lower inflation rate. 
about that. As much as it has been true for the dollar compared to the eurozone in in 2022, uh, well, that may reverse uh, next year if uh, gas prices eventually stabilize or or fall further, as they have been for a few weeks now, and the electricity prices uh, follow suit, as uh, that should be the case, you know, given the structure of the European energy markets. Let's move then on to Switzerland and um, the um, uh, big move from the SMB um, was in some respects sort of uh, well sort of targeted uh, and obviously generally people were receptive to it although there was a little bit of confusion just after. Um, thoughts around uh, the SMB and of course um uh, the um, the inflation outlook in in Switzerland itself. Well, indeed, Switzerland is uh, is an interesting country uh, at the current juncture. Uh, inflation is much lower than in any other country. Uh, still much higher than, of course, the SMB would like it to see. But three point two percent in uh, September, uh, I think, quite uh, all other countries, uh, at least Western countries, would like uh, to have some sim- sim- similar problem. But still, uh, the, the message is one of uh, more normalization to come. But at the same time, the recent comments from the SMB has, has been much more balanced in terms of uh, highlighting also the risks to growth, uh, not only because of the you know, current situation, but also because of a potential over-tightening of monetary policy, which leads uh, to think that maybe, uh, although they will keep on, say, talking tough in terms of how much they will raise rates, uh, the SMB will probably be on, on the, say, dovish side of, of things when compared to the ECB and the Fed. Now, moving then on to the uh, Swiss franc um, you know, itself, and uh, you know we've got a very interesting chart on page uh, on uh, chart twenty four on page eight uh, around the uh, you know business confidence uh, and you know certainly sort of you know certainly some sort of rollover there um, uh, thoughts around SMB's the, the sorry the Swiss franc valuation as well as the uh, kind of confidence rolling over. Well, uh, the, the the fact, of course, that confidence is rolling over is one of the reasons why probably the SMB sounded a bit more cautious. Also, because you know they can't afford doing that because, despite all the comments about the fact that you know 3.2 percent is not aligned with the with the definition of price stability, uh, it's still a much smaller problem than having inflation at 10% or so as as the ECB is facing. That allows a bit more flexibility in, uh, you know, looking at both the cycle and, and the inflation fight. And, uh, and if you want, the Swiss franc reflects that because on the one hand, uh, having uh, a perspective of less monetary tightening would, of course, would, uh, you know, uh, kind of work against uh, the exchange rate, but at the same time, or looking at the longer run, uh, having a, a stable uh, inflation, stable and low inflation, has been, as we have seen since the end of Bretton Woods, one strong supportive factor for the Swiss franc when compared to the other uh, developed countries' uh, currencies. And as long as that uh, remains the case, uh, there remains also the case for 
the Swiss franc to stay strong as it has been for the past 50 years. So let's um, let's now pivot to the Far East and to China and uh, more close to home, Paul. Um, so um, in terms of um, uh, China, clearly there's a lot of uncertainty there. A lot of uncertainty around, um, you know, real estate, uncertainty around um, uh, balance sheets. And then uh, I guess they're dealing with deflationary forces rather than inflationary forces that many other countries are dealing with. I think it's a good example of what the US has exported to China. And that is a housing crash and the problems of clearing it up. I mean, that seems to be the perpetual sort of problem here, coupled with the you know, zero COVID policy. Um, we know growth expectations for this year have declined. Most people expect them to come back to sort of 5% growth for China next year. Um, but when you look at that, yeah, there are good reasons for thinking that. Um, the People's Bank of China is expanding its balance sheet. It's version of quantitative easing, if we were to put it as simply as that, which is what the US and UK did after the global financial crisis. Um, money and credit growth have been subdued, but uh, are coming back to some extent, and inflation is low, so it's okay for the central bank to sort of ease policy. So you've got the sort of aspects of easing of policy there potentially in place, but it's that perpetual question about after a credit housing crash, how easily do you recover strength in the economy? And I think, I think that's the fundamental problem here. Um, certainly the ingredients are there for some sort of improvement. And certainly sort of zero COVID policy, you know, we may see an easing there. Um, but Mose, I think you were early to point out that in other emerging economies, in Asia as well as elsewhere, you've not had the same credit expansion as you had in China. So in a sense, they're a bit of a safer bet. Um, we're not trying to revive sort of the economy using QE or you know, credit expansion uh, as we are in China. But you know, we're coming from a very low base. I mean, we've got a chart of Indonesian private sector credit to GDP, which is a very, very low level indeed. Same in sort of India, not much of an increase in Malaysia and so on. So in non-China emerging economies, there is more of a scope uh, to adopt the bad habits of the West and take, <laughs> uh, take on more sort of credit and to leverage up and to expand sort of the economy in that sort of way. So... Yes, there are signs that China can improve, but you know maybe better prospects in other emerging, uh, especially Asian markets. Mm, no, exactly. Yeah, you can see that clearly in India and uh, and Indonesia. So um, certainly looking wider afield, and uh, China will probably take some time and a lot of policy um, impetus to really start you know uh, improving things. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we've had lots and lots. I mean, you've listed it in a recent mm. piece. You've done lots mm. and lots of policy initiatives mm. to, you know, get banks to lend again. But it's that old story, isn't it? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. And it's a bit like that in China now, I think. With mm. I was a Bloomberg story just a couple of days ago about the sort of continued problems in the housing market. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, and also with zero COVID. I was talking to uh, some of our colleagues in Hong Kong and uh, their kind of view is that um, 
uh, you know, even for Chinese New Year, the economy still will not be no. kind of fully open. So the earliest that could happen is probably in 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 uh, around May time. Yeah. Um, as we move into um, uh, spring and summer, so yeah, still still a bit of a lockdown there. Uh, although uh, I guess Japan has opened now. Yeah, exactly. And Hong Kong now. Oh, of course, and Hong Kong as well, exactly, yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to um, the other part of the world um, very quickly um, uh, on a, a, uh, I was going to say on on a Tesla, or Tesla, Elon Musk X space jet. (laughs) So um, um, moving on to uh, Latin America and um, and, and Brazil. Um, Also, we talk a little bit about the um uh, the inflation no developments but um Joaquin the Brazilians are uh, much more adept at fighting inflation than it seems other central banks are <laughs> yeah that's that's right so it's uh, i think we 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 are surprised in this this side of the world um that we get inflation double digit inflation whereas in Latin America it's a much more common event uh, or at least we we're, we were used to dealing with with um, with higher le- levels of inflation and indexation um, of um, of the economy. Uh, but the, the but Brazil, I think, is, is a good example of how a central bank that has uh, recently, uh, in in terms of years, had had gained its uh, its independence. Um, it reacted very quickly and very aggressive. Uh, very aggressively to to try to fight inflation. So they increased rates from, from the beginning of, of 2021 after some of the, the clear indicators of not only um, uh, PPI, but also uh, the, the CPI indicators starting to reflect this. They increased rates from, from levels close to 2% to um, very recently to levels of around 13.6% or, or so, something like that uh, very, very recently. So that uh, that shows the, the amount of um, of monetary tightening that was, that was covered in Brazil. And and now the, with, with the, the latest prints are showing that inflation is now back to, sing, to high single digits. Um, and this has been one of the, the successful stories there. This clearly has been one of the um, uh, reasons, let's say, why the, the economics team in Brazil, uh, headed by by Pablo Guedes on the on the um, Ministry of Finance, but also uh, by Campos Neto in the in the central bank, um, have have actually um, it's propelled the the Bolsonaro administration actually to 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 behave or, or to to get better results um, than than they were expecting in, in the recent elections. But all of this has uh, helped to stabilize uh, yields in Brazil. Particularly in, in local currency, we know that the Brazilian economy, different to some of the other ones in, in the region, is, is much less dependent on, on foreign currency. They, they deal, they save, and they, they deal much more with um, with Brazilian reals. And um, and so they, they've stabilized the, the yields there um, on the on the, on the short term. Um, and actually, that's, that's also helped uh, been also helped by by stabilization of the currency. The currency in Brazil has been one of the few ones that has um, actually strengthened. Um, uh, against uh, against the dollar, so it's uh, it's up by over um, uh, just over six percent on a year-to-day basis. Certainly, that's quite amazing, and uh, I guess the Brazil is at real against the euro and sterling uh, yeah. has, has obviously been uh, has been by far the st- one of the strongest currencies um, on a, certainly on a year-to-date basis. So yeah, truly um, interesting, and it certainly reminds me of one of our earlier podcasts this year of. Uh, of uh, you know quite a kind of bullish stance on uh, 
on on Brazil on, on real rates. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, something is positive. Uh, a quick word on on I guess on the political scene. Obviously, um, by the time uh, um, you know, I guess at the end of the month we'll have the results of the, <laughs> the election. But I think generally, is it uh, right to say that uh, certainly the first round was pretty positive in terms of, you know, Lula probably having to pivot more to the centre and, um, you know, Bolsonaro um, actually probably doing a lot better than people expected. Yeah, that's true. There is probably some sort of... um uh, of core voter of Bolsonaro that doesn't want to say that they vote for Bolsonaro. Um, that clearly, it clearly happens in in uh, in other countries, but in Brazil, I think it's starting to get much more evident. So now, the the, the current difference uh, in an election that that had a very high participation rate um, is was only of, of five points in favor of of Lula, which uh, he might be a bit disappointed. It's a, it's a great success or, or, or turnaround story for for Lula after being in jail a few years ago. Uh, but he will have to move more to the center. That that is exactly right. Um, so therefore, the, the prospect for more uh, extreme left wing policies have have diminished. And the the interesting thing here is that um, because of how the Congress is elected in Brazil and the, and the proportional representation in, in, in different cities depending on their population, also means that um, uh, the party of Bolsonaro has actually won more seats. Uh, than in, in the previous election. So now we have maybe three big um, sections, there are three big coalitions that, are, that none of them have a majority, so they will have to start negotiating. And uh, some of these um, changes to the Constitution require um, a special majority in Congress. So uh, that is also an, an argument in favor of a moderation, let's say, and, and maybe water down some of the of the extreme policies that have been discussed or have been in the in the headline at the, at the moment. I think um, it wouldn't be um, uh, it, it wouldn't be hard to think that Lula might win uh, in the, in the second round. He there's no minimum required now. Whoever gets more votes will, will become president, um, and therefore, I, I think with with a Congress that leads to to another party, it will lead to a bit more of moderation and also um it would lead to it would be interesting to see who is going to be the next um uh, person in charge of the, of the economic minister in in brazil which uh, would probably give us more of an idea of the direction that that lula might might uh, might, might give the, to the country mm. certainly a fascinating situation uh, so a uh, last page um page 11 uh we um we obviously spend a lot of time on the E when it comes to ESG. Um, obviously, it is very, very important for, for all of us. Uh, but we thought we'd do a, a bit of a deeper dive on the G um, within the ESG. Um, so, um, um, and, you know, in some performance terms, it's probably better evidence the G makes a difference. Yes, indeed, yeah. Uh, so the G, the governance factor, sometimes neglected. Uh, but we start off by saying it's a, it's a famous study, Frieda Bush and Basson. It's a, one, a, a meta study. <clears throat> Aggregate all the evidence on what works best for shareholder returns. Is it E, is it S, or is it G? And the answer is it's G. So you want companies with good governance uh, if you want the better returns. Um, so you want companies to be managed with shareholder interests in mind the g works best 
And in many ways, that's the older version of what G was all about. G was acting for the interests of shareholders, maximising returns for shareholders. It's a sort of Friedman idea. What should companies do? Maximise return for shareholders. That's it, you know, raw capitalism. Uh, But of course, that's changed. And I think one of the most decisive moments was August 2019, pre-pandemic, when it was the business roundtable of the largest companies in the world, sort of saying we should... The mission of companies should be to benefit all stakeholders, not just shareholders. So it's their customers, their employees, and the communities in which they work. And in particular, and I took this directly from our mission statement, um, support the communities in which they work and protect the environment by embracing sustainable practices and look after their workers. So... Governance means doing all of those things, protecting sort of workers, protecting the environment, acting in society's broader interests. So then I I dreamt up a little Venn diagram which says, okay, so if you're good governance and you want good environmental standards and you want good social factors, then you want to have something that meets all of those requirements. So it's 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 the, the... the bit of the overlapping three circles which satisfies all of that. Sounds easy, doesn't it? But that's not really feasible in practice, I think, because I know, Mose, we've talked about this a lot. You know, when you come to ESG ratings, it's not black and white. So you're not saying, this company's good G, good E, good S, tick. We'll have that. It just doesn't work like that. It's... It's 50 shades of grey or 100 shades of grey in terms of satisfying those requirements. And I was inspired by Jason Jay, who's on your Future Leaders panel. And he came out with a great statement the other day. Um, Can ESG change the world? And his answer is quite simply, no, it can't change the world. It can change your asset allocation and it can make you feel better and But no, it won't change the world. Um, Rather, to change the world, you've got to have a different view of governance, and that is, you know, more activist and stakeholder sort of involvement to get companies to behave in a very different way. Um, I think two examples in that that I found particularly influential. Uh, Patagonia sort of devoting, uh, donating its company to a a, a social purpose sort of vehicle, climate change sort of vehicle. Um, And also the activities of a a company which I think has got the most fantastic name, Engine Number One, because it reminds me of something out of Thunderbirds, you know. (laughs) So Engine Number One takes a 0.02% stake in Exxon, appoints three new directors as a result of its sort of activism, gets the company to change its uh, reporting of emissions and set up a zero-carbon subsidiary. Wow, you can have an effect. So Jason Jay says that's an example of you know, how this can really work. Better governance means, yes, looking at all those wider objectives, but through the channel of much more activist investing strategies. Mm. And that sort of gets me excited, because I think that's what everybody would like to do. Um, so it's not just ESG, which is shades of grey, but it's much more activist. And that sounds like hard work, and I think it is very hard work, but you can probably do it with a smallish stake. Mm. 
So your mission, should you choose to accept it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> take set, small up, set up engine engine number EFG or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, take small stakes and, and, and force change. Exactly. Um, but I guess, um, I guess kind of on a much more practical level, you know, some of the sovereign, you know, wealth funds, you know, who probably have a different purpose than necessary just, you know, maximise the, the, the returns um, are probably... And Norges Bank has certainly already been one of the more kind of influential ones. Surely they probably have the biggest part to play here, I would have thought. I think any investor can have a big part to play, yes. Yeah. I mean, if you only need a 0.02% stake, yeah. um, but then you need friends to of work course, with yeah. you. Yeah. You, know, you can't do it on your own, but um, mm. yeah. yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Anyway, um, the chart 32, I think, is one that uh, uh, is well worth sharing around um, because it uh, you know, does have an impact. It has an impact <laughs> uh, in, yeah. in terms of uh, uh, performance, and and then uh, hopefully on the uh, environmental social construct of the world. So, um, well, gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, uh, coming on the podcast again. It's always um, very enjoyable to have you. Um, uh, you know, once a quarter going through this document. It's a it's a important document to kind of set the scene as we move forward. Uh, and hopefully the winds of change start to come a little bit sooner than uh, the later. But uh, with that, uh, thank you very much, uh, everybody. Uh, and um, we will speak to you again next week. <laughs> <laughs>